Are you looking for inspiring conversations about faith, film, and life? You're in the right place. Here's the host who knows the right questions to ask, Father Edward Looney. One of the things that I love, and we're going to be starting a series here of different episodes for the next few weeks, uh, in which we talk about individuals that have causes for sainthood, who are regarded for their holiness of life, and perhaps we'll find new friends to be our intercessors who can inspire us on our walk to the kingdom of heaven. And so there's one individual I've been hearing about for a while, partly because I follow a priest on social media on Twitter named Father John Hogan, who uh, who tweets about Father Willie Doyle, who runs a Twitter page for Father Willie Doyle, kind of giving quotes and such. And I don't know much about Father Willie Doyle. So I'm very excited to have Father John on here. Uh, he's over there in Ireland. So, uh, but he has a great devotion, it seems, to some uh, English saints as well. I know that he's done a number of things with St. Thomas Beckett, which I hope we can talk a little bit about too. So I'd like to thank you, Father John, for joining me today. Thank you, Father Edward. Well, first of all, tell me, uh, so you are in... Meath, I think that's how you say it, Ireland. Uh, are you a university professor or, or are you a parish priest? What, what do you do over in Ireland as a priest? Well, in Ireland as a priest, I have worked in parishes. I have worked in schools, both as a teacher and a chaplain. Um, uh, after a number of years, I'm now released to do a PhD. So at the moment, I'm doing a PhD uh, in history. And then also my work at the moment is postulated for the cause of Father Willie Doyle. So was very much parish ministry with a little bit of education and uh, some saints thrown in. Yeah. Now, what are you doing your doctoral work on? What's your dissertation topic? Um, my doctorate is on the Legion of Mary, um, okay. the history of the Legion of Mary from 1921 until 1962, So, which I would discern as maybe the first major phase of its history. Um, it's in a secular university, so it's not an ecclesiastical history degree at all. And there's a lot of interest uh, among secular historians uh, in the region. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic. Um, and the first one really to do <clears throat> uh, a doctorate on the Legion in terms of secular history. There was another one done on the spirituality uh, before. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. It touches Irish social life as well as Irish uh, the Irish church. And, of course, the universal application of the Legion and its work as well. It's really, it's really extraordinary. And that was founded by Frank Duff. Is that the guy's name? And, That's correct, yes. And the Legion of Mary, you know, as a Marian theologian, what's interesting uh, to me about it, and I know several individuals here in the States that are members. I, I wouldn't say the Legion of Mary is a flourishing organization in the United States, but I think that there are pockets and different parishes where it's been successful. It's a, a method of evangelization that the parish is using because really, you know, my understanding is they go to door to door. They, they have little leaflets. They're there at county fairs, for example, handing out rosaries and such, but kind of the spirituality, as you mentioned, is that there's a, a big component of Mary as mediatrix of grace and kind of that theology that's there uh, within the spirituality and theology of the Legion of Mary. It is very much so. It's quite revolutionary, actually, Father, because uh, Frank Duff, back in 1921, what he did in terms of Irish society, 
in terms of the church in Ireland and also in terms of the church universally, he had a whole new vision. Um, not so much of Our Lady because St. Louis de Montfort is the main theologian that inspired the Legion and its spirituality, but also the role of the laity within the church, seeing Mary as a model for the lay apostolate, but in a radical way. And as I'm looking in at the Legion in terms, like I've been a member of the Legion since I was 16, both as, as a young fella, uh, student in Presidia, um, and then as a priest, spiritual director. Um, and you can see this radical call, which the Vatican II uh, spoke about in its documents, to serve the church. And Mary is as radical. Um, I'm drawing on some of the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar uh, in exploring kind of the theological foundations of the Legion of Mary. Now, I can't find any evidence that Frank Duff um, was reading up on von Balthasar, although he's extraordinarily well read uh, theologically. Um, but I can see parallels in his vision of Mary and her role in the mission of the church and what von Balthasar has to say about the Marian profile. So that, that's that's all in there. Yeah, we, we in the West, we seem to think the Legion <clears throat> is an organisation they say the rosary and they go door to door with the statue of Our Lady in leaflets. It's much, much more dynamic than that. Certainly in the early decades in Ireland, it carried out almost a social revolution in terms of working for people's rights and the conditions in which they were living. Again, they avoided material help, but there were other ways uh, in which they were helping people. Ireland wasn't a great place after independence. There was a lot of poverty. Um, then as it expanded throughout the world, the Legion got involved in various works in different countries, and the most notable being China, uh, which really was the um, was the jewel in the crown. And there in China, it was really affecting ecclesiastical, social, and political change, because it was empowering people, and they were becoming aware of who they were and the confidence they had, not just in the church and working in the church, but also in society. And that created serious problems during the Cultural Revolution and the rise of Mao Zedong, who eventually uh, began to martyr legionaries. Thousands of legionaries were put to death under Mao because of the effect the legion was having uh, on society in China. See, a lot of the university students, you see, were introduced to the legion and they were introduced to the Catholic Church. So they were converted to Catholicism and becoming very, very active then through the legion. And then the contact with the West as well as problematic. So that's just one example of how radical the Legion actually was. And we saw what Frank Duff, like he he was sending legionaries to do work that other people would be surprised. You know, he was really, really, really zealous. He believed in what the Legion could do. Um, and he believed in the heroism of ordinary people. An extraordinary heroism. And I discovered this as well. Any priest that's worked with the Legion, and uh, particularly um, in some of the Western countries, and you see the zeal that's there. I, I had a I had a presidium that I was spiritual director of for a number of years in Drogheda, County Loud. Extraordinary legionaries. They were so zealous and so heroic. Uh, if I asked them to go to Iraq, they would have got on a plane and go to Iraq. Hmm. And this is the spirit of determination. Um, and this comes from Our Lady this radical role of Our Lady in the church to do what God asks of her uh, without fear and trusting in his grace. And so it's it's really, really extraordinary. Like I've seen the Legion from the inside and then looking at the history and what they were doing, it's, it's not a pious organization. It may be in the eyes of some, 
but it's really, really radical. In fact, maybe it's something your wonderful podcast on Our Lady and that might look at sometime in the future, the spirituality of the Legion. Um, and one thing I did note in terms of St. Ruby de Montfort, a lot of people have made the act of consecration, the true devotion, and they wear the chain as a symbol of that. But there's an interpretation of the Lunary de Montfort, which the Legion has, uh, which is moving beyond spiritual exercises, actually go out into the world and what you do in the world in terms of your work and your service, that is what you also offer to Mary as well as your personal sacrifices so she can give it to Christ. And of course, he speaks, Frank Duff speaks about that in the standing order um, or the standing instruction, I should say, where he says is to serve Christ through Mary. Well, the Legion of Mary was not on my list of topics to talk about today, but I'm glad that that we are because it's something that I actually haven't touched upon. So uh, I think it's great to give this general introduction to it right now. And as you said, maybe I should do something in the future. I think I will. Uh, I, I'm a part of the Mariological Society of America. At present, I serve as its president for a few more months. And one of our members of the Administrative Council uh, is a member of the Legion of Mary, and she's the one that I always hear talking about what the Legion is doing. So, so that's how I know it's at least present in some parish in Ohio where she lives. But uh, yeah, I'd love to learn more about it. But Frank Duff, too, we're going to talk about Father Willie Doyle and his cause for sainthood. But Father er, Frank Duff has a cause for sainthood, too, doesn't he? He has. It was opened in the mid 1990s, was it 90? 96, 97. Um, it's still at the diocesan phase. Um, I know people are involved in it, and um, it's a massive, massive cause. Um, they've been working on it for many years, and the historical commission is still working away. I think the rest of the stuff is done. Um, you're dealing with a man who lived into his 90s, who founded what I think is the largest lay movement in the history of the church uh, internationally, and left a number of extraordinary writings. Mm -hmm. And in terms of his letters, we have 33,000 of them. Wow. That's not all he wrote. We have 33,000 of his letters, um, and they all had to, to be gone through. An extraordinary man in terms of his thinking. Um, I personally believe, uh, I could be shocked for saying this, but I do think at one stage, perhaps down the road, Frank might even be considered to become a doctor of the church. Wow. Uh, because to his understanding of the laity and how radical it was. Vatican II really, it drew on a lot of what Frank was doing, a lot of other thinkers around the lay apostolate. So in a sense, Frank has become forgotten and the whole ingenuity uh, that, that he manifested in his work. Um, but very, very holy man. Um, it's a privilege to know people who knew him. Um, there was this sanctity that emanated from him. Um, and yet he was just so gentle and so quiet, so open to ideas. And um, if you had a new idea for a work for the Legion, he was so approachable, you could go to talk to him and he'd say, yeah, okay, let's try it. Let's try it. If it works, it works, if it fails, it fails. So he's really open to the spirit and um, man of profound prayer. And uh, yeah, and you, people would see him going around Dublin, riding his bike or walking to mass. He just seemed so ordinary and yet, there was, there, was a, there was a spirit that moved in that man that was truly extraordinary. I do believe he's probably one of the greatest Irishmen that ever lived. And is there a huge devotion to him? Are people seeking his intercession? Yes, they, yes. Certainly the Legion promoting his cause uh, throughout the world. And of course, legionaries all over the world would pray for his beatification at every meeting. Um, Concilium, the head council, 
uh, asked a number of years ago that the prayer for his beatification be included in the Legion prayers for as long as the cause uh, is running. So there is devotion to him. So far, we haven't heard of any miracles yet. Mm. But that's, that's also true of the two other candidates for canonization in the Legion, um, Alfie Lam and Idel Quinn. Um, Idel is venerable, uh, no sign of a miracle for her yet. And Alfie Lam, his cause, the diocesan process is finished and is now in Rome. I think the Pazizio has been written in Rome at the moment, um, but so far, no miracles. They say that, um, particularly with Adele, because she was declared venerable, John Paul declared her venerable, I think, early on in his pontificate, I think. Um, but she's waiting for Frank, such was Adele Quinn. She's waiting for the founder to be beatified, and then she'll deliver the miracle for her own beatification. That's what they say. Oh, that's great. You know, you anticipated my question. I was going to ask, were there any other saintly members uh, uh, in the process for uh, the the Legion of Mary? So you already answered that. So that's great. Now, another thing that I noticed, too, when kind of looking at your content, we're recording this. It's the first week of January. Uh, and uh, we, at the end of December, had St. Thomas of Canterbury, St. Thomas Beckett. And I know that you've written at least two books, maybe there's more. One looks to be more of a historical work and the other is devotions to St. Thomas of Canterbury. So I'm just curious about your devotion to Thomas of Canterbury. Where did that come from? And uh, why should someone maybe seek to foster a devotion to this uh, English saint? Yeah, my devotion to Thomas uh, goes right, right back to my childhood, funnily enough. Um, I suppose I always love Christmas and my favorite week of the year is between uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And so the various feasts that we celebrated always caught my attention. And Thomas Beckett, Thomas of Canterbury really kind of intrigued me. So even as a young child, I was reading about him and then I moved on fairly quickly to some of the histories. And um, I loved his personality. Uh, his whole struggle, of course, uh, for, for justice in the church uh, and freedom of the church. Um, so kind of that sparked it. And for many years, I just always dip in uh, the various biographies and works that were coming out about him. And then I was in a parish and I'd written a number of pamphlets for the Catholic Truth Society in the UK. And um, I'd finished one and so I got this sense, maybe I'll write one on Thomas Beckett. Um, I was distracted then a little because I was writing the devotions book, uh, which Grace Wing published. Um, and then as I was working on this minor um, pamphlet on Thomas Beckett, and I sent it into uh, into CTS and they said, oh, sorry, Father, did we not tell you we already have one? <laughs> so I said, what am I going to do with this? And I got the inspiration. Well, you know, there are aspects of Thomas that I'd like to talk about. And um, so I went ahead and uh, wrote uh, Thomas Beckett, Defender of the Church, which our Sunday Visitor published during the pandemic, uh, which wasn't great for uh, for launches or promoting it or whatever. But um, Thomas Beckett, I think, is an important saint for us. First of all, in the book, I try to treat with the myths about him. And there are people on both sides of the dispute about Thomas Beckett that have myths. There are those who believe Thomas Beckett was this massive conversion as soon as he became Archbishop, that he lived this terrible rake life, um, and then he became Archbishop, and then he was a great defender, and he was wonderful. And the other myth on the other side, uh, those who don't like Thomas Beckett, was that uh, he was a hindrance to proper governance, and he was a thorn in the side of the king, and he was really a negative influence uh, on English history. Uh, and those 
two views of Thomas continue today. The truth is in the middle. Um, he wasn't a man that had massive conversion. Um, he had a conversion, but it's a conversion that is more like the conversions we experienced in our lives, where you reach a point in your life where you realize, you know, I need to take my faith more seriously. And we begin to deal with issues in our lives that get in the way of fervency. And so we work on them. And that was the way with Thomas. Thomas always had faith. Um, his mother had extraordinary faith and she raised her son and daughters, he had no brothers, in the faith. Taught them charity and how important charity to the poor was. Taught them how to pray. And even though he was extraordinarily ambitious as he was working his way up in secular life and then uh, within the, um, the household of the Archbishop of Canterbury and then eventually uh, as, a, as a deacon and servant of King Henry II as chancellor, he, he nurtured that ambition. But yet he continued to pray a bit. He took the discipline every now and again. He liked his food. He liked the good things of life. In terms of alcohol, he had to be careful. He had a very bad stomach, so he wasn't able to take too much wine, take a bit of beer, all right. But he was, had to be fairly abstemious for, for medical reasons there. Um, he liked nice clothes and he liked to have a reputation. He also was extraordinarily generous with other people. So he was very human in that regard. And um, then when he became chancellor, um, he did a lot of work for King Henry and the lifestyle that he built around himself, he used in the service of the king because he went on foreign missions, whatever. And when they saw how well the chancellor presented himself and how generous he was, then the foreign people that he meet would say, oh, well, if the chancellor's like that, the king must be even greater. So he used all of this for the prestige of the king. But then he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. He didn't want to be Archbishop. He didn't because he realized that he was a hard worker, dedicated to everything they did. He did a brilliant job in everything they did. He realized if I have to be Archbishop of Canterbury, I'm going to have to do a good job of this. And that means I'm going to have to change things in my life because if I have to serve Christ in this way, I really can't let him down. I can let him down in other areas of life because I'm only a deacon, I'm only a chancellor or whatever. But if I'm archbishop, I have to change. And so when he became archbishop and he realized I have to serve the people of England and the church, that was when he began to change these little things. So in a sense, what I say in the book is that the piety that was there as a youngster, it deepened when he became archbishop. He had his struggles. He was still, he could still be proud. He had all the, the, the many of the, the vices that we have as human beings in terms of our personality. And he had to overcome them bit by bit by bit until he came to the end and he was heroic in the face of martyrdom. His position that he held, we wouldn't agree with it entirely. Uh, the court system in England at that time, and um, the king could only prosecute people outside of holy orders, outside the clerical state. But given that the church employed so many people, in its various administrative functions, a lot of people were actually regarded as clerics and they were admitted to the lower orders of the clerical life and because they served. And that meant that they were not subject to prosecution if they committed crimes under the, under the king, under the state system of governance and courts. So that was kind of a bit of a problem. You know, I don't think we'd agree with that now. But also the king also had a lot of power over the church. And Pope Gregory VII, um, now a saint, 
and he struggled to pull the church away from the power and influence of monarchs so the church could run her own affairs and that was the dispute then between henry and thomas thomas took that side we might not agree with him in terms of the courts the clerics weren't subject to secular courts but certainly monarchs could not dominate the church and decide how it was run appoint its bishops or whatever and, and that was the the main thrust of his dispute yeah, there are two things you said uh, that maybe I just want to speak about, just uh, that that impressed me, I guess. The first was you spoke about the piety of Thomas of Canterbury as a youngster. That That's kind of what you said. And it, when you began talking about Thomas of Canterbury, you said, you know, when I, when you, when you were a young kid, you know, reading his story and, you know, I just think that's beautiful in a sense that, that as a young person, you were reading the stories of the saints and, you know, how, how that speaks and should speak to, to families today to continue handing on the faith. Cause look, there you were reading the stories of saints as a youngster. And now here you are a priest doing doctoral work and, uh, and such. And so to imagine what happens when when we hand on the faith successfully at such a young age, how it happened to Thomas of Canterbury, how it happened for you, how it happened to me and so many others. So uh, I just think that's a point worth dwelling on is just uh, piety and promoting that to, to our young people. Absolutely, because young people need heroes. We all need heroes. But what sort of figures are we presenting as heroes? And the saints are extraordinarily dynamic people. And um, one of the issues that I would really have is the idea that saints are almost like plaster statues up on pedestals. Um, and we think of the miracles around our lives and all of that. And we, we lose a sense of their humanity, um, which we can't do. And I do know, that, for example, some people, they don't like causes being started so early for people. Now, of course, that, they have to be rigorous and all of that. But one of the problems is they leave it, leave it for 100 years, leave it for 200 years, do nothing till then. But the problem there is not only are you going to lose the witnesses, but you're going to lose the humanity of the person as well. And that's absolutely vital to their sanctification. You know, Thomas became a great saint because he had these things that he had to overcome with help of grace. He did. OK, the job wasn't done by the time he was martyred, but then he made the greatest testimony of all in the shedding of his blood uh, for the church and for Christ. Um, so yeah, so we if we can present the humanity of the saints and how dynamic they are to young people, instead of just plaster statues up on pedestals, I think that could do a lot for them because um, they will see that, oh, these are human beings and they actually have the same struggles that I have. That's why Carlo Acutis, I think, has become so popular because people can see he just seems to be like a regular kid you know, and yet there as he living his regular life and he's playing his games for an hour a week, that's all. And he likes his food, he likes his pizza. Um, and yet God can make a saint mm. out of this kid. And he can do the same with every other kid. Yeah, and there is a saint or hopefully one day saint uh, that you have uh, spent a lot of work promoting and spreading and that's Father Willie Doyle. And uh, how did you become involved with the cause for Father Willie Doyle? You're the postulator, so maybe even tell us what a postulator is. But 
But yeah, how did this this priest, Father Willie Doyle, mesmerize you so much that now you expend so much energy in your life to share him and promote him? I suppose I haven't heard about Willie Doyle for quite a number of years, actually, growing up. Um, by the time I was growing up in the 80s, um, he wasn't a dominant figure in, in the church in Ireland. He was huge before that. By the time our generation came, even though it's funny, um, I grew up and I lived uh, three miles from the Jesuit college, which he entered yeah. and lived two years in. Um, and we used to go to that place um, for a kind of a garden fete every year. So we knew the Jesuits and all of that. There were other holy Jesuits that would have captured the imagination of locals, but not Willie. So what I would have heard about him then as a kind of those as working and reading and seminary and stuff like that. And then I made an acquaintance pat kenny a very dear friend of mine and pat discovered um alfred o'reilly's biography of willie Doyle. Oof, it was about 15 years ago now and he realized why isn't this guy a saint so pat set up um he set up the website and then he runs the twitter account the willie Doyle twitter account to share um willie Doyle's life so if when i became friendly with with pat and um, he really began to say, do you know about this guy? I've heard about him. Who is he? That's the question. If you ask Pat Kenny, you're going to get the full story. I really said, wow, how could we miss this guy? And I realised the connection of my own local place at home uh, and how extraordinary he was. And the thing about Willie was his personality just jumps out at you. So it was really through that friendship that I really began to intensify my study. And then we began to conspire as to how can we spread devotion and how can we look into a cause? We'll talk to the Jesuits through and the Jesuit provincial Father Leonard Maloney was absolutely fantastic. And as we reflected and prayed, uh, we came to the decision, okay, maybe this is where the lady can set in, step in. And the Jesuits had worked on the cause of another Jesuit, Blessed John Sullivan, who actually was ordained with Father Willie in, in the same ceremony. Um, and they were pursuing that cause. So then uh, Pat and myself and some others set up the Father Willie Doyle Association to promote his life. Mm. Um, and we discerned with the Jesuits that uh, we could actually become the official petitioner for his cause before the Holy See. Um, we spoke with um, my bishop, Bishop Tom Deanahan of Neve, and uh, he reflected carefully on it and he saw the enthusiasm, but he also read about him and he fell in love with Willie Doyle as well. And he says, let's go for it. Let's introduce this cause. Um, so I presented the petition. I was appointed the postulator by the association as a priest of the Diocese of Meath, but also with an interest um, in causes of canonization. And what a postulator does is at the diocesan level, the two phases for causes, you know, there's the diocesan phase and the Roman phase. We are in the diocesan phase at the moment. And the postulator of the diocesan phase um, formulates the official petition to the bishop requesting the opening of the cause to give evidence that there is enough proof of holiness and signs, intercessory signs, uh, for the church to begin a formal investigation. And Bishop Dean had agreed and accepted it. My work then is to assist um, the process as it goes forward in the diocese. We have various commissions theologians, historians, examining his life and collating all the materials related to his life, his writings, and the tribunal which take, takes the evidence of witnesses. And I just help in whatever they need 
and then towards the end we collate it all together all the materials and it goes to Rome and I'm also involved in promotion and um, one of the things that um, we have to get for the cause is a miracle so my job is to get out as many prayer cards and much information get to as many sick people as we can uh, so we can we can get the miracle we need so who is Father Willie Doyle? Why is he so impressive? When your bishop read his story, he was impressed by him. Yeah, what what's the background of his life? Well, he was born in Dorky in 1873 to a um, middle-class family. His father worked in the law courts, um, very devout Catholic family. Um, four other members of the family went into religious life. Either his priest, his sister was a nun. Um, he grew up um immersed in the catholic faith in the lives of the saints but also his personality was truly extraordinary as a young fellow he was very vibrant and great fun to be with and the stories of his childhood his brother records um are lots of fun and he grew up in dorky uh, which is just south dublin so it's a fishing fishing village so they're out in the sea and they're up in the hills and all of that but also as a youngster, he manifested an extraordinary charity towards others. And as soon as he was old enough, he was clearing out um, fireplaces for the servants at home to, to reduce their workload. And then he was going out when he was older to visit the poor mm. uh, in Dorky. And he would bring them food. He would do work around their houses. He could go and visit them. And lots of stories about his charity work as a child. He discerned a vocation to the priesthood. Originally, he was going to go to um, the diocesan priesthood in, in Dublin. His brother, Fred, had, born, had born, been ordained a deacon for the Archdiocese of Dublin. But unfortunately, he died 10 days before he was due to be ordained a priest. So Willie decided, I'm going to take his place, which in a sense gives you an idea of what Willie is like. And um, he could forget himself to help others, to serve others. However, his brother Charlie, who was his closest sibling, there was a couple of years between them, entered the Jesuits. And Charlie said to him, well, Willie, why don't you become a Jesuit? Willie had absolutely no intention of becoming a Jesuit. He wants to be a priest. And he said, rather, kind of, I'm not going to come to this place. Absolutely not. Um, but his brother gave him a book by St. Alphonsus Liguri on the religious life. And he said, read that. So Willie took it away and he read it and he discerned, yeah, God wants me to be a Jesuit. So he joined the Jesuits, um, as I said, he came to um, Rahan County Offaly, which is a few miles from where I'm from, um, and he entered um, the Medicite, two years there. He had an extraordinary experience. Um, he had a breakdown following a fire in the Medicite, and he was sent away. And his vocation really was on the line. But for some reason, his superiors decided, no, we'll let him stay. Now, at that time, this was the 1890s. So we'd lots of priests in Ireland. We didn't, if we'd lose a few, it doesn't matter. So his vocation, as far as they were concerned, wasn't really important because there were so many of them. But they let him continue. And he came back. Now, you have a great devotion to Our Lady, Father Edward, and you work on Our Lady's mission. Willie, too, had an extraordinary devotion to Our Lady. Mm. And even though there's no evidence that he read Father St. Louis de Montfort's books, with no evidence that he actually had them and read them, on the 1st of May, uh, 1893, he made an offering of his life to Our Lady hmm. to live a life of martyrdom and in the hope that she would obtain for him the grace to die as a Jesuit martyr. Hmm. And that was an oblation 
which was offered and fulfilled in his life, we believe, in the manner of his death in the First World War, but also in everything that he did. It was offered with extraordinary generosity through the hands of Mary to Jesus. Um, so this was the attitude that Willie Doyle had as he was going and preparing for priesthood. Um, he was ordained a Jesuit priest, and he wanted to go to the Congo. Uh, in the archives, we have discovered that he was translating uh, a Congolese catechism into English to learn Congolese. So he was really, really keen to go to the Congo on the missions where his superiors said, your health is not good. So we're going to put you on the Jesuit mission team instead. So for about nine years, he spent his time going all over Ireland and Britain, carrying out missions and retreats. And that was really extraordinary insight uh, that the Jesuit superiors had because he had this personality. He was very warm. He was a very vibrant, quiet speaker. Um, and yet he was able to set people on fire by the way he spoke. Yeah. And his love of God was absolutely apparent. So the crowds would come to see him. And we have lots and lots of stories of people whose hearts were touched by this man, the conversions that he made. He spent hours in confessions and the various missions and retreats that he did. Um, yeah, he, 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 in this work, he came into contact with many religious communities and they were so taken with him that many members of the communities would, would correspond with him. So he became a spiritual director uh, to many, particularly with many nuns. Um, we do know that he was in correspondence with a couple of nuns who seemed to have been living extraordinarily um, intensely mystical life, um, and he was well able to understand them and guide them. So he was an extraordinary spiritual director. Um, and there's, there's one story of uh, his converting a woman who had been working in the streets as a prostitute, and it was just a chance encounter. Uh, where she just met him on the street. He told her to go home, not to start to offend God. And a number of years later, when he was working on a retreat, his provincial called him home and said, um, you need to go to a prison in England because there's somebody who's on death row and asked to see you. And it turned out to be this particular prostitute that he had just met mm. and spoken to for a couple of seconds. She had become, become implicated in a murder and she was due to be hanged the next day. Next day. She had remembered what he said and she'd asked for him and did. The prison authorities had scoured the place to find out who is this priest. And so Willie spoke with her. He received her into the church. Um, he got permission to say mass for her and gave her a first communion. And then he was with her. He went with her to the scaffold where she'd wow. been hanged. Um, that story is an extraordinary story. It touches many hearts, but it gives you an insight into this man and the effect that he had on people in the depths of their souls. Um, when the First World War broke out, Willie decided to volunteer as a military chaplain. Um, he did so because one of the main areas he was working in as a priest was with young men um, who he was trying to bring back to God. In Ireland, the women have the faith, they go to Mass, but the men used to drift away. Um, so he decided to set up an organization to bring young men and working men into retreats. The retreats were for the rich or for the religious, but for ordinary working people, there were no annual retreats. And in this way, he wanted to help them in the spiritual life. The next thing he saw, all these guys were signing up to go to war because many of them were unemployed. They had no work. They had nothing else to do. 
go to war, at least I'll have food, I'll have, um, I'll have wages to send home to the family. So Willie signed up for that, but he had a sense that the offering that he made to Our Lady, even though he'd offered everything to her in his life, was now going to be accepted in an extraordinary way. He knew what was ahead of him, and he knew what was, what was waiting for these guys, and he wanted to be with them in their worst moments, and those are going to be killed, he wanted to prepare them to go to God. Mm. So he he was his offer was accepted in 1915, and at the beginning of 1916, in January 1916, and end of January, he headed over to the front. And he carried out a most extraordinary ministry among the soldiers. He impressed everyone. The generals, um, the other chaplains, they were stood in awe of this man who risked his life every day, running out onto the, the battlefield to give the last rites, to bring guys back. Um, behind the lines, he heard thousands of confessions as prepared these guys to die. Mm. Um, he offered mass in an extraordinary way that, that he used to pray the rosary with them. And there's lots of stories. You know, some of the guys didn't want to say the rosary, but when he was able to get around them, and um, there's a lovely story about one guy wouldn't go to confession. And, you know, like confession is important when you're on the front because you're here this morning, but you mightn't be here in the evening because you could be killed the minute you go out. So this guy wasn't going to go to confession at all. Again, you like this. This is about Our Lady and Willie's devotion to Our Lady. And he was trying to persuade this big, tough guy to go to confession. But no, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. And so Willie then turned in prayer to Our Lady and he said, OK, Mother, he said, I've done my bit. I can't get through to this guy. You're going to have to get through to him. He needs to go to confession. And the next day, your man came up to him and said, I think I need to go to confession. So our lady worked on him. So he was very ecumenical. He cared for everybody. And didn't matter whether you're Catholic or Protestant, if you were in need of the priest's attention. Of course, within the, within the guidance of the church, of course, he looked after them. He, when the Prisoners of war, the German prisoners of war were brought in, he ministered to them too. And we do know uh, with young prisoners that um, he got details of their families from them. And he wrote to the families of German soldiers who had been captured to tell them, your son is okay, this is where he is. And um, during the time he was there, he wrote letters home to his father. And uh, they're extraordinarily vivid. He was a great writer. And those who've read his letters really even historians are very, very interested in the letters because they they give you the inside track on what it was like to be in the trenches and, and all that the soldiers and the chaplains experienced. Um, and again, like I said, he was a great writer. They read like novels, so vivid. Um, so with this reputation for great work, uh, helping the soldiers, um, suffering terrible deprivations with his men, he never took any of the... Uh, the kind of the, the, the cushy things that were given to some of the officers, not there was much cushy experiences in, in the trenches, it was horrendous, but he never took any of the privileges that were due to him as an officer. He was down with the men. And on the 16th of August, he was in 1917, he was at the Battle of Passchendaele, which is one of the worst battles of the First World War. And he had been ministering uh, in the early morning, but as the shell fire became heavier, Everybody, chaplains and the doctors were all pulled back as the soldiers were fighting. Willie could not settle. He realized his men were out there. They were being killed. 
and there was no priest there to be with them in their last moments to give them the sacraments. Um, so he went back to the front and he spent the rest of the afternoon and the more late, uh, late morning, early afternoon, running on and off to the battlefield, risking his life every time he went out, giving last rites, uh, dragging guys back in. Towards the late afternoon from the trench, he saw two men fall in battle. They turned out to be two Anglican soldiers, Marlowe and Green. One of them was from Belfast and one of them was from Old Castle County Meath, which is in our diocese. Again, both were not Catholic, they were Anglican. And Willie jumped out of the trench and ran towards them uh, with the aim of seeing if they were alive and if they were alive to, to drag them back to the safety of the trench. However, when he got there, all three were hit by a shell and he was killed. Mm. Um, soldiers, his own men, saw him fall. They ran out to see if bringing him back, but discovered that Willie was dead. Given how heavy shell fire was, um, they decided to leave the body where it was. They cut a couple of buttons off and took his pioneer pin. The pioneers are an organization, are people who give up alcohol in honor of the Sacred Heart as a reparation and a help for those, a spiritual help for those uh, in addiction. Um, and they took his pioneer pin and they came back to the trench. When things quietened down, they went back. The body was gone. Whether it was destroyed by another shell or just gathered up with all these other bodies and buried somewhere, we don't know where he is. However, the soldiers who had extraordinarily, extraordinary devotion to William life began to pray to him immediately after death. And we do know, for example, just weeks after his death, um, a poem appeared in an Irish newspaper, The Sligo Champion. And in that, that poem, written by a soldier about Willie Doyle, you could see the firm belief that this man is a saint in heaven. So they began to pray to him, huge devotion emerged among the soldiers. And then 1920, a friend of Willie's, a professor from UCC, uh, University College Cork, uh, wrote a biography in 1920, and it became an international bestseller. So people were acquainted then with the life and the character, the holiness of Willie Doyle. But the story of Willie Doyle in the retreats and then the story of Willie Doyle on the battlefield is only half the story of Willie Doyle. The other half of the story of Willie Doyle is a life of a man who lived a most extraordinary life of intense prayer and penance and a man who nurtured the most extraordinary and intimate relationship with God. And this is preserved in his diaries, hinted at in some of his letters. And so when he was killed, he had left instructions that everything was to be destroyed that he owned and his brother decided to read his writings and he just couldn't believe what he saw my brother is a saint he had reached an extraordinary level of union with god and so yeah he's what can we say about willie doyle a dynamic man with him as extraordinary human personality and a man who had the most extraordinary intense relationship with God. So you are in a unique position. You are the postulator of this cause for sainthood. So you've been able to immerse yourself in the writings of Father Willie Doyle. You've seen these diaries. Uh, the, the diary, for example, that the brother read was so impressed by. 
what documents or what writings of Willie Doyle are accessible to a person like me who's just interested and want to maybe read his writings? Uh, is there a book out there or how, how does the ordinary person read about him or learn his learn from him? A few years ago, Pat Kenny um, was asked to put a compilation of Willie's writings and some biographical details into a book. It's called To Raise the Fallen and it's published by Ignatius Press. Um, and that gives you a good introduction to Willie Doyle. Um, the introduction has brief biography and then there are extracts from the war letters, extracts from his diaries, uh, extracts from the prayers that he wrote. So that will give you a good introduction to him. In terms of the bi biography, um, the major biography is that one published in the 1920s. It went through five editions, um, each one getting larger and larger and larger as Alfred O'Rahley, the author, was reflecting more on Willie's life. And a lot of Willie's writings are contained within that. Uh, O'Rahley worked from the diaries and the letters, so he incorporated a lot of Willie's own writings into that while giving a very, very comprehensive story uh, of his life. Um, and that's kind of a general... O'Rahley took the... It's a, it's a general life. It deals with every area of his life. And again, a particular emphasis on the, the, intense, the intense personal uh, spiritual life that Willie had. Then another book that I recommend is by an English military historian called Carl Hope. It's called Worshipper and Worshipped. And while she does include the early life and the life uh, that he lived as a, as a missioner and a preacher, and she concentrates a lot on the war experience of Willie Doyle. And uh, it's an extraordinary book, extraordinarily well-researched. Um, it's almost like she goes day by day uh, in, in terms of Willie's experience in the war and just huge amount of research around everything. Um, there was one story um, from Willie's life where this young guy, um, yeah, he, must, he was suffering from trauma and he was arrested for desertion. A young guy from Dublin called Joseph Carey. And in, I think, September 1916, I think it was, uh, Joseph Carey was found guilty and court-martialed and condemned to death. And Willie had to be with him uh, to, to pray and give him the last rites as he's shot at dawn. Um, so I was reading some of this when I was putting the petition together and the chronology for the, um, for the petition to, to seek the opening of the cause. And I started looking through um, various archives and stuff, online archives for, for soldiers, um, those who had been condemned to death for desertion. Um, I said, what happened to Joseph Carey? What's the story? And as I was researching stuff and going to kind of uh, databases that we have here, you see when you're doing a doctorate in history, you, through your university, you can get into all of these databases. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and then I said to myself, what are you doing? Let's see if Carl has anything on it. And went to Carl's book, which I read a couple of times and I'd forgotten. And there was a couple of pages on this guy. Huge amount of stuff on this guy. So it's really, really detailed. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And if anybody wants to know anything about the First World War, even just kind of a secular uh, a secular examination of the First World War, her book is brilliant because she goes through so much. So I suppose they're the main ones. She raised the Fallen, O'Rahilly's um, biography, and Carl Hopes. And then Willie only published five pamphlets in his life. And these have been collected for the first time in a book from Seneca Press. Um, and you can find Father Willie Doyle's pamphlets. You, you can, if you go to Seneca Press, 
uh, Silverstream Priory here in Ireland, the monks, Benedictine monks, they have a publishing house and they have published his writings. So for the first time with his own writings and um, the right to their two pamphlets on um, vocations, which were extraordinarily well uh, received during his lifetime and led to many people entering religious life. Um, they're, they're one on working men retreats and um, there's one of the rubrics of the mass and the next very very good one scruples and um, willie was able to go through uh, various understanding of what scruples were and how to treat them so if you're interested in reading his own writings were published in a lifetime and um, those pamphlets for the faithful they're called have been published by um, Seneca press one of the things when you're sharing about Father Willie Doyle, and especially after his death, kind of the immediacy of people being devoted to him in a sense, that that poem was written, that people were talking about him. And so, you know, of course, you know this, that kind of at, in the cultus of a saint, there has to be kind of this this cult of devotion where people are drawn to the individual and so you see that immediately so so here we are now we're a hundred years removed from his death or uh more or less and so uh how how does a person like you or i you know how do we strike that affinity towards uh father willie doyle so so how does he inspire you as a priest and how have you seen him inspiring uh, the lay faithful that are a part of the Father Willie Doyle Association that you started. In a time of great difficulty that we're living through at the moment, both in terms of the world and the church, Willie reminds us both as Christians and then for you and I and those of us who are priests of the importance of our relationship with Christ, that this is central to our lives as baptized men and women, and that whatever happens, we have to maintain that relationship with God and trust in him and foster an intimacy with Jesus. And Willie didn't have it easy in his life. He had bad health. He had that mental breakdown. And interestingly enough that he never suffered from mental issues for the rest of his life. That was the most extraordinary thing. Whatever healing occurred there, um, it meant that he was probably the, the sanest person on the battlefield. Um, absolutely, as others were losing their heads when he was keeping his. Um, so I think that's the first thing that both as laity and as priests and religious we can learn from Willie, is that the, the central thing in our lives is our relationship with God and an intimate, close relationship with Jesus. And Willie had this, you know, and you read the thing of Song of Songs, it's a beautiful um, scripture to reflect upon. You see that really deep relationship that God is manifesting in that scripture. And that's the relationship that we are called to. Um, and that's the relationship through which God wants to give us life. And Willie had that. And so Willie's spiritual life speaks to us as Christians. And it's interesting that intimate relationship isn't just for the good times. In fact, it's more for the bad times in our lives. Because then we begin to realize how important this is. There is more to my life, the difficulties I'm facing. And so Willie, Willie can teach us that. And um, as priests, he was a very good priest. He did his duty. One of the aspects of his life, one of the things that he considered important was reparation and the role of reparation in the lives of priests. We preach the gospel and uh, we serve the church, but we also have to make an offering of our lives to God as he did through the hands of Mary. And one of the big themes of his spirituality was 
for reparation for the sins of priests. And that's what he's going to offer to suffering, his penances and his death for. Because we now know what the sins of priests can do, how devastating they can be for the church, what we've been through these last 30 years. Um, Willie was prophetic in understanding that. So he tells us as priests through his own life is that we need to make reparation. We need to make right what was wrong. And in terms of prayer, in terms of sacrifice, as well as in the other administrative responses to, 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 to the evils that the certain priests have done. But also the importance then of being a priest in the context of Christ's ministry. Who am I as a priest? Fulton Sheen tells us a priest is not his own. Priest belongs to Christ. And Willie, if he wanted to be a priest, had to be another Christ. And so when he went out to the people, he had to forget about himself. It's Christ that I bring you. And so as a priest, even though he was very popular, I wouldn't dare call him a celebrity priest, he warns of the dangers of putting yourself into a situation where it's about you. Mm. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about the soul that Jesus wants to touch. And you are the means through which Christ will touch those people. Now, as in the saints, we see that when God works through us, you know, hidden with Christ and God, when Christ is revealed, we too shall be revealed with him. And that's what you see in Willie. He served Christ with so, such humility that now his holiness is revealed to the world. Um, but that humility is central so God can work through us to others and then change us as well. So that's his great lessons for us in our priesthood. Um, in terms of lay people, he speaks of lay holiness, uh, working among workers, that whatever you're doing in your life, how busy life is you need to make time for god you need to make time away so you can pray you can be alone um, and holiness is for everyone it's not just for priests or not it's for lay people it's for working people many saints teach that saint jose maria escriva he found it opus day um as, as, as a major manifestation of that teaching so willie tells us that's important and um, the, the family you mentioned the family earlier on um as i was reading through all this time last year we were putting the last of his letters together and um, transcribing them. And the thing that struck me as I was reading his letters, which I hadn't seen before, was his devotion to his parents. Hmm. You know, honour your father and your mother, the commandment tells us. And as I was reading it, oh my word, Willie is the perfect exponent of this commandment. The deep love that he had for his father. And the tender love that he has for his mother, his mother wasn't well. She suffered from health problems. And he was so attentive to her. And, and that's a very good example in terms of family life, the love of parents. Um, that we need to love our parents, even though they're not perfect. And some people have very bad experience of parents. And, and that, you know, that has to be dealt with as well. And there's certain things you have to be careful with as well for your own kind of mental health and your own um, emotional uh, health as well. But again, the importance of family and the importance of parents, particularly when they're getting older. You know, sometimes when parents get old, um, they become a bit of a burden. And even old parents think I'm a burden on my children. Here in Ireland, we are, um, unfortunately, there's a great push to legalise euthanasia. Mm. Um, and I would say maybe if not this year, certainly next year, uh, we will probably have into euthanasia uh, introduced into Ireland. 
um, and just this, this veneration of the old, which is always part of our culture, is the Irish, it seems to be eroding. Um, and that seems to be a thing in the West as well. So Willie speaks to us about that. What else can we take? Mental health. One of the big things about um, his life that we were certainly promoting is how he can become a patron for those who suffer with mental health issues. Um, because, it's, like I said, he had his breakdown and he was invisible. Um, thankfully, he was allowed to continue with his studies. But then he never suffered from mental health issues again. And I think he has an intercessory role to play there, as well as a role to inspire people that suffer from mental health issues, that, you know, he'll pray for them, that they, they can overcome this, that there's help there for them. Um, and he points in that direction. Also, the time they were living in as well, I suppose we're living in a very difficult time because there is the war in Ukraine and there is the conflict in the Middle East. A lot of people, I listen a lot of people talking possibility of another war, third world war. Hope it doesn't happen. Um, but we're at a time again where it almost feels like the 1930s. Um, we're on the cusp of some terrible conflict. And Willie speaks of peace and reconciliation. Um, he hated the war. And there's a lovely scene um, during one of the battles. Um, he was standing on the trench one night looking over towards, over across no man's land um, to the German side. And he knew that there was a huge British offensive about to take place. The mines had been dug um, and everything was ready and it was going to happen in the early hours of the next morning. And he writes home to his father and he stood there looking out over these poor German men. He said, they haven't a clue what's coming for them. They don't know. And he prayed for them. And as far as he could, he, he gave them absolution across no man's land because he said many of them would be dead in the morning. And this great sympathy of a priest and of a man for other people who are supposed to be our enemies. And yet he loved them with the love of Christ. And we need to be able to love and to understand other people and find other means of resolving conflict. War is not the answer. Uh, yes, sometimes it's necessary. The Nazis wouldn't have been defeated uh, without war. It's a terrible thing. Sometimes it's necessary. But Willie certainly teaches us that peace and reconciliation must be foremost in every effort when it comes to conflict. So I think there's some of the things that kind of he can speak to us today. And it, we're reflecting, you know, why wasn't the cause opened in the 1930s? Because of the huge push for the cause. There were many miracles, many favours, and 6,000 favours were reported. Wow. Some of them were quite serious. In fact, I imagine that if the cause had been opened, you had the miracles there for beatification without that. Wow. You can't use them now because they're so far back and the uh, the dicastery, the causes of saints, the investigation is so rigorous. I don't know whether they'll be able to come up with enough evidence to prove them, but they're there. Um, but why wasn't the cause open then? When devotion to Willie spread all over the world, and it was, it was worldwide. Um, wow. the, the, the book was translated into many, many languages, French, German, Flemish, uh, Spanish, Italian, Japanese, we discovered actually the Willie's writings and um, his books, his biography was actually circulating Japan in the 1930s, Japanese and Japanese. Um, why wasn't it opened? Um, now the Jesuits took a decision because there were four candidates presented to the Jesuit postulator in 19, the late 1930s, early 1940s. 
And he said, right, well, go with John Sullivan. We can leave the others to later. And I said with Willie, some, some were opposed to it because um, he was a prankster. Again, it's another area of his life we could talk about. He was a prankster uh, in his early life and as, as, as a young Jesuit. And I think maybe some of those that receive, were the receiving end of the pranks didn't appreciate it. But um, they said, look, we leave Willie's cause to Providence. And I do believe that's what's happened. Because I think Willie speaks more to the people of our time than to the people of the 20th century, which is interesting. And I do think there's a providence involved in this. Is Willie Doyle relevant for us today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think even more so now than in his own time. And as I said, when I was talking about Thomas Beckett, you cannot escape the humanity of Willie Doyle. You cannot escape it. Mm. Willie Doyle will never be a plaster saint on a pedestal. In fact, if you tried to do that, I'd say there'd be a lightning bolt coming from heaven and Willie laughing as it bashes, destroys that statue. He is a human being, most extraordinary warmth, who can speak to us. Um, and I think, not just because I'm an apostolator, but just as, as a priest and as a, and as a Christian, I would say is that is the perfect model for Christian discipleship. He's so human, he's so holy, so approachable. And I think he's a man, a saint that we need yeah. in the years ahead. Yeah, as you've been sharing his story, like it's so impressive, it's inspiring, it's amazing. Like there's not enough words to describe like what I've received just from hearing the story of Willie Doyle's life. And uh, I come to his story as a newcomer. I've seen a few things, but I didn't know his whole, his whole story as you've recounted it. And, and I think I found a, a, a priestly saint to inspire me in this year. One that I, one whose prayers I need. I think, I think a priest any priest, especially a struggling priest, could maybe be reinvigorated by the story of Willie of Father Willie Doyle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it certainly, you know, the Holy Spirit works in the most extraordinary way, as we know, we know that by faith. And there are moments that the Holy Spirit just gives the church something it needs. And I do think in this time when priesthood has taken so many whacks, morale is so low. And we've lots of priestly saints and all of that, absolutely. But I do think in Willie Doyle, I think God is going to give the church a most extraordinary model of priesthood. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I, and I think, and I've just, I've just touched the surface, Father Edward. There's yeah. just so much more to Willie that I could talk sure. about him for hours. Wow, that's. Well, I hope maybe one day I'll make it to Ireland and we can continue this conversation in person. And so if you go to Ireland, you know, you go to sites like Knock and Dublin and, and the Cliffs of Moher and, and such. So obviously there's, are, are, is there any place where a person could go on like a pilgrimage to honor Father Willie Doyle or to be in his footsteps or anything like that? Um, the family home is still there in Dawkey, but it's in private ownership. You have um, to buy that as a Willie Doyle association. 
Oh, do you know something? If there's anybody out there that has the money to give it to me, I will absolutely take it. Absolutely. Yeah, you you need it. that. Yeah. You need that to be the shrine when he's a saint. We do. And this is interesting. There is no shrine to Willie. Um, that, that he, okay, the, the novitiate where he was, the Jesuit college, a few miles away from my native place, that's in ruins now, unfortunately. Um, and then he just traveled all over Ireland. Britain. He lived in a few places. He lived in the Jesuit community in Gardner Street, which is in Dublin city centre, in Rathfarnham Castle, which was a Jesuit house out in the suburbs. And um, he lived in Clongos College, which is in County Kildare. Um, and he did a lot of important work there as a teacher and a prefect. And he founded the college magazine and the college union, which still exists today. Um, so there are places associated with them. But in terms of a shrine, a central place, the recent one, no, like I said, if there's anybody out there that has a few million to spare, uh, you can give me a shout and we can talk and see if we can acquire something. I'd be very happy for that conversation. Um, and of course, also, if people want to help the cause, because uh, donations are always very welcome, um, you, can, you, can, you can help us by going to our website, which is willydoyle.org. And if people want to give petitions, um, read more about him or want to help us out with the cause of a few donations, willydoyle.org. Um, but again, I said at the, the, the end of my book on Thomas Beckett and um, the biography, when his shrine was destroyed by Henry VIII, we don't know whether the body, some say the body was burnt, others say the body was uh, carried away by the monks in the middle of the night and secretly buried and it's now lost, we don't know. But I said at the end of my biography that Ultimately, Thomas Beckett doesn't have an, a central shrine because he is in the hearts of Christians. Mm. The shrine for Thomas Beckett is the church, the universal church, which he sought to defend. Um, and I think the same with Willie. There is no central shrine. We don't know where his body is. It, whatever's left of it could be somewhere in the fields of Belgium. But his life, his holiness, his intercession and his presence are in the church. Wow. And so those who have devotion to Willie, your heart can become a shrine to Willie Doyle. Um, and you can spread, you can make build more shrines by spreading the word, telling people about him, uh, praying for others to him, um, spreading the legacy, reading about him. Um, but yeah, if, well, if we'd have a Godfather, Edward, you will come to Ireland and we can we can show you around and we can visit some of the places that he are associated with him, you know. That's true yeah. of anybody that comes as well, you know. The, Most definitely. Be... Uh, so there is a, you mentioned the website, willydoyle.org. Uh, there's a prayer for his canonization or beatification out there. Is that a prayer you pray every day? Is that like something you attach to your morning prayer as a priest or... Like, how often do you pray his prayer for beatification? Oh, yes, every day. Yeah, at least a few times every day. Um, normally, when I when I say a morning prayer, after morning prayer, there's kind of a few prayers that I say, uh, and that's that's one of them. And um, we have so many people that we're praying for, so the ones that I can remember at the moment with number of prominent people, I stick them into the, the prayer, but then we include everybody. And, um, and we encourage people to pray that prayer every day and to pray for people who are sick uh, you can get the prayers on the website um or you can contact us and uh, we can send you copies of the prayer uh, we can send you relics uh, little third class relics 
um, that touched to his crucifix and um, a lock of his hair. And that's all we have of him is a lock of his hair. Um, and the, the oblation, which he actually signed in his blood as well. They're the only first class uh, relics that we have of him. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I would please contact us, ask for prayers and uh, ask for prayer cards. And if you want, like to order a few prayer cards, order a few more for your friends and spread yeah. the word. I promise you I'm going to become a huge promoter of Father Willie Doyle after this conversation. Thank you. So. Well, this has been very delightful, very wonderful. Uh, you're on social media, Father. If people want to follow you, uh, how can they do that? Uh, I am on Twitter. Do we call it X now? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, at J-S-H-O-C-D-S. Um, and you're very welcome to follow me. And uh, I I use my Twitter account. There's so much going on in Twitter at the moment, and it becomes a battlefield. So I said, right, I really need to use my Twitter account for good, like you do with yours and, and your work. So I like to concentrate on saints and, and the positive things as well, because um, we need to, the negative is there, but we need to concentrate on the positive. And um, there's so much good in the world. There's so much good in the church. And we just need to concentrate on that. And we need to keep praying. Um, not only to, to keep our hearts up, to keep us sane, and also to know that uh, we've received an extraordinarily rich legacy and heritage and tradition, and we need to hold on to that. And we have to let that fill our hearts and motivate us and help us, because um, God will speak to that in difficult times. Well, I'd like to thank you, Father, for joining me today on How They Love Mary, sharing this story of Father Willie Doyle, also talking about Frank Duff and St. Thomas of Canterbury. It's been uh, one of my favorite conversations that I've had on this podcast. So thanks so much, Father, for your you witness much. and your uh, encouragement. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you inviting me on. If you like today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening. And don't forget to stay up to date with what Father Edward is doing by following him on Facebook, X, or Instagram at the handle at FREdwardLooney. Thanks for listening, and please join Father Edward again next time for another inspiring conversation.